Hello and welcome to episode 41 of Linux After Dark. I'm Joe. I'm Chris. I'm Gary. And I'm Dalton. Welcome back, chaps. Windows is much better and yet so much worse than I thought. So, I have had to deal with Windows lately, Windows 11 specifically. I built a machine for a friend of mine who, Linux is just not happening, let's not even go there. He needs Windows, or at least he feels he does, and I'm not about to argue with people's technology choices. But he asked me to build him a machine, and so I suggested that he just spec it pretty well and spend a bit of money on it this time because he got eight years out of the last one and it's sort of still going but quite crustily and so windows 11 it was now the part that's much better than i thought is installation and getting everything working i remembered a time when you'd install windows and then you'd have to do loads of updates and you'd have to get all the drivers you'd have to go to the motherboard's manufacturer's website or the laptop manufacturer's website try and find the drivers try and find the right versions download them install them reboot loads of times now the network interface is generally supported out of the box obviously you have to not connect that while you install windows 11 pro if you want to have an offline account but once you've got it installed and logged in plug your network cable in or connect to wi-fi do all the updates all the optional updates and then it just works. And it's way quicker than I remember and so much easier. You can download the ISO from Microsoft directly. You can use Ventoy to install it. So you don't even need a Windows machine to uh, set up the USB stick. That part of it is so much better than I remembered. And I think that we have to acknowledge that aspect of it. Yeah, I think there's that aspect. And there's also some package managers and stuff on Windows now that exist, stuff like WinGet that wasn't around back in the day. So it is a nicer experience to get up and running and get everything installed. That said, I still couldn't use it day to day. Yeah, I've just set up a new ThinkPad for my wife, new to her. It's like an eighth gen one. And I installed Windows 11 on the beginning of the disk just to have there but she mainly uses Linux. And I use Rufus, which I think came up on Late Night Linux before, Joe. Yeah. You can tick some boxes, so it doesn't even ask you about the advertising and tracking preferences. It just says no to all of them without even coming up on the screen. Yeah. You can even set up to set a user account up as part of that process and ignore the TPM and secure boot requirements that are supposed to be mandated by Microsoft. And once it was up and running, it was just missing something to do with USB-C and the Intel Thermal Management Engine, which you can actually get from Windows Update in the advanced section. Yeah, like the optional updates and stuff. Yeah, that's it. That's what I meant, the optional updates. And yeah, I would agree. I remember the days of finding another computer in the house that had an internet connection to download the Wi-Fi cards drivers to a USB stick <laughs> to take it back to the machine, yeah. to get it online, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, and you know, WSL, it's not too bad. Some of the people that use the facilities at work log in via SSH using that, and it's fairly seamless. You can go to the App Store and download various distributions. So there have been improvements, but I'm with Gary. I, I still couldn't use it. I find the Start menu irritating in a different way now. On Windows 10, I used to press Start and Search, and it would not search for what I was searching for, then disappear, even on a high-spec machine. Now it's very rapid, but it's full of fucking advertising. Piss off. <laughs> Well, and so we come to why it's so much worse than I thought. Now, my friend Kyle is a real Windows Power user. You may know him from such shows as him shitting on Linux and <laughs> annoying the audience about a year or two ago. 
Well, so I asked him, like, what are your tips? And he said, simple wall. Install simple wall firewall. And he said, you are not going to enjoy the experience, but you should definitely do it. And oh, man, oh, man. So you install simple wall, you get it configured so that it's starting properly and not nagging you to start on reboot and everything. And then you just start using your computer and it just keeps popping up. Something, something, something.exe wants access to the internet, block or allow. And it is both infuriating and enlightening at the same time. I mean, I knew Windows did a lot of tracking, right? But I opened the settings to look at the um, startup apps and settings.exe wants to access the internet. Everything you do on Windows wants to access the internet. Why? Why does it want to do that? Presumably for metrics collection and... Advertising. Yeah, advertising. And it is just a nightmare. And it has really, really opened my eyes to, yes, it is a great experience compared with how it used to be. It's not quite as good as Linux yet, installation. But once it's running, you realize, wow, I really, really appreciate Linux now. What, don't you like being advertised Bing points when you open settings? Come on. (laughs) I've been a good start menu. (laughs) So just speaking of that, I have a Windows 11 VM running and I've just opened Edge for the first time. And the first thing that pops up is take your AI powered copilot for the web on the go. Scan this QR code on your phone and it will not load any web pages unless I dismiss this. (laughs) It's just little things like that that just get in the way that really, really bug me. It's gone so far beyond how it was when it was Windows 10 and you'd get the occasional Crandy Crush advert or something in the start menu. Like It is now at the point where it does get in the way, and these aren't just things I can remove and never look at again. And this is even on Pro. You pay double the price for Windows, and you get the same amount of advertising. Yeah, this is actually Windows 11 Enterprise Edition VM. (laughs) What? (laughs) Yeah, even that seemingly doesn't get you to escape. I'm telling you, Gary, install SimpleWall. It's an open source tool. It looks pretty old school and, you know, not very pretty, but just do it and have your eyes opened. I'll give it a go. I mean, I used to use something very similar on Mac OS many years ago called Little Snitch, and it would occasionally pop up and say, your definitely legitimate copy of Adobe CS Suite is trying to talk to the internet, etc. But it was, you know, it was very, very occasional. It was never every two minutes like you're describing. It'll be a lot more now on Mac OS. And I say every two minutes, that is for the first couple of days, I think. And then once you've either allowed or blocked everything, it pretty much calms down. But uh, it's, I just was really not expecting it. I don't know why. I feel so dumb for not expecting it to be that bad. But it was just so much worse than I thought it was going to be. Yeah, I mean, there's a whole slew of YouTubers that have like how to tame Windows scripts and like PowerShell things that you can run to strip stuff back out. There's even a thing called Tiny11, which installs in eight gigs of storage and only requires two gigs of RAM. And they've hacked the shit out of the registry to allow you to install that and things. But yeah, that's that, that really starts to feel like Michael Jackson's face by the end. You know, what's left of the original <laughs> Windows and that? I mean, I used to run an IT support business, barely anyone would ask for um, Linux, even if I showed them it, they would still want to use Windows. But it's just not something I would want to consider for my daily computing experience, despite the fact it has improved in some areas. Dalton's been very quiet about sitting there running Windows. Like, how can you bear it, man? 
I don't know. I, I want Discord, and I want Discord to stream my game with audio to people, and you can't get that on Linux. It's one feature that keeps me using Windows. But you're doing a lot of your daily computing on it too, right? I'm doing all my personal computing. It's not my work machine. Hmm. If I need to do something that involves Linux, you know, if I'm doing an open source project, it is frustrating. I mean, going through WSL and then getting the files back out to Windows to try and mess with them. To be fair, I do embedded stuff a lot. So most developers who are just deploying to the cloud don't have this problem. Hmm. But for me, you know, it's I have to get the files out and put them in my downloads folder. And then I use Etcher to write them to a USB stick. But be careful if you use Etcher twice without closing Etcher, your computer blue screens. (laughs) (laughs) It's an Easter egg. (laughs) So, you know, it it is terrible. It's god awful. And I keep using it. Because of the applications that run on top of it. That's ultimately why people use platforms. And I think a lot of our audience don't need Windows. And so don't have to put up with the bullshit. But having seen what it actually is like, it makes me just so appreciate Linux. And, and you know, if Ubuntu went down this road, which it could, you never know, it wouldn't matter. There's tons of other distros. There's Forks, there's Fedora, there's Arch. You know, there's unlimited choice. And you're just not going to get away with this kind of shit in Linux. And that makes me so glad that we have it as an option. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Tailscale. Go to tailscale.com. Tailscale is a VPN service that makes the devices and applications you own accessible anywhere in the world, securely and effortlessly. It enables encrypted point-to-point connections using WireGuard, which means only devices on your private network can communicate with each other. Unlike traditional VPNs, which tunnel all network traffic through a central gateway server, Tailscale creates a peer-to-peer mesh network. It handles complex network configuration on your behalf, so you don't have to. Network connections between devices pierce through firewalls and routers as if they weren't there, so there's no need to manually configure port forwarding. Tailscale is available for Linux, Mac, Windows, Raspberry Pi and ARM, Android, iOS, Synology, and for devices that don't allow additional software to be installed, such as printers and other embedded devices, where you can set up a subnet router to act as a gateway, relaying traffic from your Tailscale network onto your physical subnet. So go to tailscale.com and try it for free on up to 20 devices. That's tailscale.com. Quick bit of admin then. First of all, thank you everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. If you want to learn more, you can go to linuxafterdark.net slash support. And remember, for $10 or more per month on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed that includes this show, Late Night Linux, and Linux Downtime. And if you want to get in contact with us, you can email show at linuxafterdark.net. Let's do some feedback then. John writes, a slightly morbid topic, but I recently decided to have a if I get run over by a bus conversation with my wife and family. I've consequently set up OTPs for email, links to NAS, etc., but reluctantly agreed that the world would not end for my loved ones if my Linux PC expired in sympathy. On the other hand, I'm now more diligent about encrypting hard drives so that my demise does not lead to said PC turning up unbleached on eBay. Interesting to hear other thoughts on this topic. What's important, or is it simply I'll be dead and don't give a dot dot dot? So for me, I've sort of taken the I'll be dead so I don't care route historically. (laughs) Uh, So yeah, if I died, good luck getting access to anything, frankly. 
But I do think that I should probably rethink that now I've got a wife and kids and it's probably the same with a lot of other things in my life. Um, So I'm interested to hear your guys' thoughts on it and what you would do and put in place. Because, yeah, for me at the moment, if I die, there's just going to be a bunch of servers and stuff sitting in the garage and a couple of laptops that no one has any credentials for. I keep getting into the situation where I think, okay, in case I die, I need to document my NAS, which has my family's data on it, and stuff like that. And then it gets to be the weekend, and I don't, and I forget about it again until the next time I have a panic attack. (laughs) So... I'm getting better about it. Recently, I've been trying to get some accounts at least shared access. You know, I've got a Bitwarden family account, so I can share stuff with my family, though I haven't actually explained how to use most of it. Trying to move ownership of things like my brother's phone bill to him instead of me owning it, he paying it. That's a long story. He was using my Gandhi email which, well, that went out the window. So he is now on fast mail and we both have control over our own accounts. It's incremental steps, but steps that I think are important because I really don't want to leave everything behind as unresolved. I don't want to leave behind a state where, well, as soon as they power down that NAS, they don't have their pictures anymore and they never will because that would be really sad. It wouldn't be my problem, but it'd still be sad. See, that's interesting because this is exactly what stopped me setting up like an account on my next cloud server for my wife, for example. So mm. we now live in this world where all of the family photos are in iCloud because that's easy for her to access. And she could probably move the bill over and start paying for herself and keep the shared albums with photos of the kid and stuff in. And my phone automatically uploads those to Nextcloud and I periodically take them and copy them somewhere else as well. So she's completely shut out of all of the FOSS self-hosted stuff apart from occasionally opening the Jellyfin app on the TV, which let's face it, she'd probably just go and set up Netflix or Disney+. Plus. So it's interesting that you have the opposite problem where you have family set up on this stuff and also not much of a DR plan other than slowly slipping away from it. I think this stuff is difficult because we are the person that sorts this out. So certainly for me, the the circles of people around me, unfortunately, I've been in a situation more than once where someone has passed away unexpectedly. I am the person they phone. They say, this person has died. Can you help me with their computer and their phone and everything? Now, it tends to be easy because people don't really encrypt to any degree you know i've said many times before when i used to do it support and i'd boot a live linux usb and get people's files up they'd be like but you don't know my password how the hell did you get in you must be some crazy hacker (laughs) trying to explain encryption to people is just they just don't get it so that's what's really difficult i don't have someone that i trust to explain this to to get it out. But I also want to have a good setup that I believe in that uses things like encryption and security. Finding a balance for all of this is really difficult because if I give these passcodes to my family, they don't understand repercussions and diligence. So it creates a difficult situation, which I still haven't solved. I definitely don't have a full plan to be able 
to feel confident that someone could dig through my personal effects and access everything, there's some stuff that people would never be able to get to at the moment. And this is part of the problem, right? Is even if I did document everything, you know, I had my SSH key somewhere with the passphrase that someone could get to, et cetera, et cetera. I'm still not entirely confident that even with all of that information, my family would be able to find someone who had the requisite knowledge to get to it anyway. Yeah, they're not going to walk into a computer shop and say, look, this is my husband's laptop. He died. Can you get the photos off? Or, you know, this NAS has a load of photos on. Can you get them off? Because the average person and even the average techie doesn't have the knowledge or facilities to get at some of that data. Well, this is why I talk to my wife about you lot and she would know she'd get into my phone because I've added her fingerprints to my phone or thumbprints, whatever. So she can get into my phone. She can talk to you lot and you lot, I've got to help her. That's the deal. I was never told this. Well, I'm telling you now, boys, it's on you. I'm glad I know. Shit, that reminds me. I did have that situation when I was working at UbiPorts because I could just tell my family, here's this other person. I trust them wholeheartedly. Go to them. They'll help you sort it out. And I don't have that anymore. Oh, no. Yeah. Whereas, you know, my wife is thankfully quite technical. She pretends not to be, but she runs Linux full time and I never have to help her with it ever. So she must be doing something right. And she's perfectly capable of dealing with all the shit that she would have to deal with. It would be a nightmare, obviously, or it will be a nightmare. Let's face it. I'm going before she is. (laughs) (laughs) She'll be fine, I think. She will, through my phone, have access to everything. That that will unlock everything that she needs to have access to, is, is kind of my thoughts. Like, I've kind of centralized, I shouldn't be saying this, should I? Because it's going to make my phone a real target for people whenever I leave my bunker occasionally. But it's all in there, pretty much. And as long as she can get in there, she'll be fine. I also wonder if this is more of a problem for people like us than the average person. Because like you said, Chris, you know, the average person, they've probably got some photos on their laptop. There's some stuff in iCloud or Google Photos or whatever. And by and large, if someone has got the passcode to the phone or you know, the password to the laptop, they can get at that stuff and do what they want with it. But for us, where we've got you know, more extravagant setups, it is probably more of an issue than for you know, 99% of people. Well, it's interesting because I've actually been looking at like life insurance and things because I've got two small children and never thought about stuff like this before. Depending on the organization, if you have the relevant legal documentation, it does actually get you quite far. The commonly offered advice is you don't have to write down all your passwords. You just have to keep a record of what exists in your name. And then once you have the legal documentation that proves you are the spouse of the deceased person it actually does get you quite far. So that does help. And I have managed to get Apple to help with that before, for example. We did have to present documentation and proof of who we were, of who the relatives were and everything else. So there are mechanisms. So it's about striking a balance, I think. But it is it is difficult for us because all of the best practices that we follow security versus convenience, that old diagram that always comes up. That's where we are. You know, we've placed ourselves high on the security line. So the convenience has plummeted and that's going to make it difficult, I think. Right. Well, we better get out of here then. Remember, show at linuxafterdark.net if you want to send in your feedback. 
We'll be back in a couple of weeks, but until then, I've been Joe. I've been Chris. I've been Gary. And I've been Dalton. See you later. <laughs>